Opinions heard in the following program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio. Good evening. You're listening to the Mackinac on Michigan show brought to you by the Mackinac Center's Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on 760 WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jared Skurup of the Mackinac Center. We have a great show tonight. We're talking to Nolan Finley at the Detroit News about the state of the governor's race and a recent column he had on lockdowns and whether or not they even worked. We'll be diving into the frustration of many parents about school closures, remote learning, mask mandates, and what we can do about it with Ben DeGro of the Mackinac Center. And we're looking at a potentially brewing fight in Lansing over a lot of surplus state money and whether it should go toward new programs or tax relief with the House Appropriations Chairman, Thomas Elbert. But another big announcement we have on the show is the new Frank Beckman Center for Journalism at the Mackinac Center. Jared, tell us about it. Listen in so you can hear how to support these new efforts for a new free market journalism project here in the state of Michigan. We'll be back with more of the Mackinac Michigan show after a brief break here on 760 WJR. Welcome back to the Mackinac on Michigan show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on 760 WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skurup of the Mackinac Center. And we have a great guest here with us, uh, Nolan Finley, the longtime editorial board editor at the Detroit News. Uh, Nolan, it's great to be back on the air with you. Good to be on the radio with you again, Kelly. <laughs> so, Nolan, we... Uh, we had a lot we wanted to talk about with you, but I really want to start with the governor's race and where yeah. you see things shaping up. We've had a lot of people on the Republican side entering the, the race, a lot of people with big money. Uh, is there someone in your eyes that could unseat Gretchen Whitmer? At this point, I'd say not yet. I mean, I think Gretchen Whitmer is unseatable, but we haven't seen a candidate emerge from this pack of uh, rather little-known Republicans who've risen to challenge her. Uh, you know, but it's, it's February. We haven't, uh, we haven't seen their campaigns really get started. I would expect we'll see that uh, during the Super Bowl. We'll see some of the ads uh, pop out the way that Rick Snyder did. And, uh, you know, who knows? I, again, I do think she's beatable. If you look at the polls, her support is pretty soft. I mean, she leads all of these fellows, but uh, nobody uh, really has gained a whole lot of name recognition yet. You know, the history of Michigan doesn't lend itself for uh, incumbents to be defeated. It rarely, if ever, happens. So it's a big job uh, facing the Republicans, and she's got a whole lot of money to work with. Yeah, the uh, as you mentioned, we haven't had an incumbent lose since uh, Angler, John Angler's first term. Uh, there's one one unique thing about this race that I really haven't seen seen covered or written about yet, which is it's the first time in decades where the the incumbent's been running against their own party in the White House. And, you know, as you know, um, you've generally those two years in, there's kind of a backlash against regardless of the party, whoever's president. What do you think that, you know, if Joe Biden is pulling in the low 40s the way he is now, what kind of effect can that have on the race? It's going to ha- it's going to hurt Republicans uh, everywhere if he's still at that number. And Gretchen Whitmer has tied herself to Biden. She auditioned for his, to be his vice president. Uh, I'll be waiting to see if candidates like Whitmer and, and others bring Biden in, whether they think he'll be an asset on the cra- campaign trail or a 
uh, are a detriment. Uh, but yeah, with when you've got the head of your party that unpopular, uh, you know, it's not good. But again, it's February and the election's November. There's a lot of factors that could affect this race. Uh, if COVID truly does wane and become a less of an everyday issue, that helps Democrats if they can figure out how to get inflation under control, which mm-hmm. I think is less likely than COVID coming under control. That helps Democrats. And tell me how this, what the Supreme Court is going to do on abortion this summer, because if there is a uh, ruling out of the Supreme Court that would make it appear that abortion rights are under, uh, under threat or at risk, I think it changes the situation in Michigan. Nolan, on the money side, you've got uh, Gretchen Wimmer has uh, something like $10 million sitting in her account, maybe more than that. If you Mm -hmm. look at the numbers that just came out, you've got James Craig leading the pack with one and a half or so. Everybody else is down in the hundreds of thousands. Um, It was also fascinating to me to see that that all but one of these campaigns had spent more than they took in on the Republican side in the last go around, which was disappointing. But then you also have a couple of people uh, Kevin Rinke and Perry Johnson who are willing to commit millions of dollars to their own campaign. Do you think that um, that those people will have a shot that they can buy their votes in, that the, that Super Bowl ads will be able to pull them through? Well, you know, I think it's a long shot. Uh, but if you look at uh, Chief Craig, who came out strong as the front wall runner, he, he raised about half as much uh, this period as he did the previous period, which yeah. suggests a sinking campaign. Uh, he's not exciting people. Uh, the Republicans seem to value self-funding candidates over candidates who could really grab uh, a um, you know the voters' imagination. Both Kevin Rinke and Perry Johnson have a lot of money, but not a whole lot of dynamic political appeal. And that tells me the party's wanting to save its money for other priorities, like state house races state Senate races mm-hmm. and have pretty much conceded the governor's race. Well, yeah, you know, it could be that it could also be, I mean, I think Hillary Clinton outspent Donald Trump something almost two to one. Um, I was just going to wonder how, how much yep. does money matter anymore versus where we just have this big field of Republicans, you people kind of wait it out, see who the candidate is. And is this just going to be an election on Whitmer? It's either going to be for her or not. How much can they actually gain on her um, versus just any generic Republican um, getting votes just based on that? Well, money always matters, and she's got a lot of it. She'll be able to spend whatever she needs to spend. Um, But, you know, the election will be largely about Whitmer, but that's never enough to put somebody over the the top. You have to have a candidate uh, voters feel excited about voting for if you're going to unseat a well-funded incumbent. Uh, you look at the Grand Home DeVos race uh, in, in uh, whatever year that was in her second term. Uh, no, there's no way as, as unpopular in terms of her performance that Grand Home was, she should have won re-election. But again, Michigan doesn't like to turn out incumbents, and they never got excited about Dick DeVos. So you got to give them somebody to vote for. Nolan, I want, I want to get to your column about COVID lockdowns and whether they yeah. worked. But but I but I first want to ask you to transition into that. You know, we've got Whitmer's polling numbers somewhat improved over the past 
uh, couple of months. And a large amount of that is likely to the fact that she hasn't done much about COVID in the way that she did initially in her term. Um, do you see the the sort of frustration on the part of Michigan residents who, who, who couldn't buy seeds or couldn't put a motor on their boat yeah. for the first few months of the pandemic? <laughs> is that frustration gone? Or, or will will that be carried over to some extent into the election in November? I mean, that's a long time away and political memory yeah. is short. Where it remains, I think, is with masks and schools. Yeah. You're seeing that yeah. at school board meetings. Most of the other restrictions we don't notice any longer, if they even exist. <clears throat> uh, Gretchen, Gretchen uh, Whitmer, very smart politician. I mean, uh, she saw what was happening to her numbers. Uh, when she had the heavy hand on COVID. And so she started easing off early enough that voters might just forget. Uh, the less she's done, the more popular she's became and, and the stronger her numbers. Uh, I, that's, that, that seems to be the case for sure. Um, but getting to your column, so it was, a, it was a fascinating piece. It was a study of all the studies um, right. that have been done on this from Johns Hopkins University. And, uh, you know, for some people, it was probably quite shocking. For some people, it was like, of course, the outcome was what it was. Um, give us an overview. Did the lockdowns actually do anything to stop COVID? No. I mean, that study tells us they absolutely did not do anything to stop COVID. And we barreled ahead with these policies, with these shut, shutdowns, uh, re- without ever pausing to, to determine whether they were working or not and whether another uh, less disruptive, less destructive approach might work. Imagine what would have happened if instead of shutting down all those businesses for months uh, in 2020 and, and turning out schools, if we would have adopted a mandatory mask policy, for example, uh, could, would that have been just effective? Because if you look at the places that had had harsh shutdowns and places that didn't, there's not much difference in the outcomes. So these things, these shutdowns didn't work. But they did condition uh, Americans to forfeit their civil liberties at a time of crisis, at a time of panic, the very time they need those liberties most to protect them from a tyrannical government. Nolan, uh, Nolan Finley with the Detroit News. Always a pleasure to talk to you and get your insights as to what's going on. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, glad thanks, to be Nolan. here. Thank you. You're listening to the Mackinac, Michigan show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on 760 WJR. Stick around. We got more of a great show coming up right after the break. Welcome back to the Mackinac, Michigan show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on 760 WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skurup of the Mackinac Center. And we've got one of his colleagues, the Director of Education Policy at Mackinac, Ben DeGroe, with us. Ben, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. So uh, education just continues to be at the top of the minds of a lot of voters, a lot of parents frustrated right now with school closures, remote learning, even mask mandates are now starting to get uh, even the most moderate people upset. Um, what's the state of the land right now as you see it in education and, and, and how, how are things changing, if at all? So, yeah, we're, we're two years into um, an experiment with learning that has really uh, let down lots of students and families. And I think the faith in the, you know, the K-12 system as we know it has broken down uh, among more parents than ever before. 
And it really cries out for new solutions and uh, ways of funding students to help make up for the lost learning they've experienced during this pandemic. Um, but a lot of our public officials seemed dead set on doubling down on just doing business as usual, as if none of this has ever happened, uh, even though the evidence piles up and shows you know, the traditional system, uh, especially the traditional systems that are serving the most disadvantaged students uh, are just failing on, on levels never seen before. We need to do something different. So, Ben, we're, we're two years in. Uh, all of January, Flint schools was out. Mm-hmm. Detroit public schools was out. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what should lawmakers do about that? What what solutions are there for those families? Yeah, what are, what solutions are there for those families, right? These are the districts that benefited the most from the federal uh, outpouring of COVID cash, uh, $6 billion that came into the state of Michigan. And the way the formula was used by Congress, some districts really raked in the cash and Districts like Detroit, $26,000 per student. Flint, $50,000 per student. Wow. $50,000 per student. Wow. I what's, mean, the, what's the average in the state of Michigan, Ben? 9000 something like that? Well, we're talking just about the extra federal COVID dollars here. Uh, and wow. in that, you divide that by the number of students, we're talking uh, less than $5,000 per student. So wow. you're talking that Flint and Detroit have their normal fifteen or 20000 per student. And on top of that, they're getting another 20 something thousand and 50,000. I mean, that's, that's a million dollars a classroom in Flint. It is. It's important to recognize that this, this money is spread out over several years, but still, uh, if you're the, if you're the Flint school district, uh, the COVID cash represents multiples of their normal annual budget. Uh, and they're all, they're still desperately trying to figure out how to spend the money. And the, the research we've done and, uh, has shown that, you know, districts that are getting the most money, also serving the most disadvantaged students usually, are the ones that are the quickest to close down their classrooms and the slowest to reopen them. So it's obvious that money is not driving the solution in, in the current system. So let's try something different. So, so what is the predictor? I mean, what is the variable that, dis- that some school districts have decided to reopen? There's no mask mandates. They're not even looking at vaccine requirements. And then in the community like where I live, you know, there's mask mandates still. I can't even walk into my children's schools. So what, what's the disconnect there? And, and, and it obviously, Omicron spread far and wide. So it doesn't seem like the health side of things is the variable. It's not like it was only in certain places and not others. What is the driver? What, what is leading people to make these decisions in schools? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the decision whether or not to have in-person instruction available to students when this was studied from last school year, right? So we, you kind of wipe away those first few months of the pandemic because everybody was just sort of reacting to right. something mm-hmm. new. Yeah. But you come back to the fall of 2020 and school districts are doing all kinds of different approaches to this situation. And the research done by Michigan State University shows that the driving uh, connection here is districts that uh, went to remote instruction that left students isolated and virtual is based primarily the, the, on the fact of uh, who their community voted for in the 2016 presidential election, not the number of cases of COVID, not, not health um, indicators, but, uh, but politics. So decisions are being driven by uh, things that are not necessarily in the best interest of students, but and by partisan political factors. And the 
the, the price is being paid. And now we're seeing for students and lost learning, mental health and other things. How do we how do students make up that ground, Ben? I mean, I presume that we're seeing a learning loss. Um, what's on the table um, with the legislature and, and going on for this next year? So, yeah, what do we do to fix the problem is like the, the sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, nobody really wants to be a fatalist and say that the, the price these kids have have paid as a result of pandemic policies is going to you know, fix their future in, in a negative way for years to come. Uh, but we need to be putting all solutions on the table. That means enlisting, uh, you know, creative solutions, including, you know, giving parents access to more options um, rather than putting them at the mercy of public officials who have often demonstrated their best interests are at, are at heart. So, Right. Um, giving parents access to private tutoring that they can choose for themselves would be one example or mental health services that they may not be getting access to for their kids um, or transportation. If they're low income families and they need to get to a, another school or a, a career apprenticeship program or you know, dual enrollment classes. Uh, these are all the kinds of things that we like to see funded through through scholarships that the parents can control. And yet uh, our governor has multiple times vetoed, vetoed efforts to kind of create this flexibility in education funding. So that's illegal in state law right now, taking and using that to those scholarships to any type of private entity or trade school or whatever. So state dollars, according to our state constitution, cannot be used to aid in the you know, student um, funding. Funding cannot be used to aid a student attending a non-public school. So, right, something like a voucher program or uh, that kind of program would not be legal. But there are uh, ways we would, we're exploring through things like tax credits um, to, the don- to donors who would then give money to organizations that provide these scholarships. That's the kind of thing we should be looking at. And then the federal money, like there's all kinds of COVID money that hasn't been doled out yet. That doesn't fall under the same restrictions in the state constitution. And, and Whitmer has vetoed even those kind of programs that don't fall under our state constitution. So she has vetoed multiple programs. Um, she's put out her own plan on spending to, to increase uh, teacher pay and some other stuff for the past uh, week here. Um, but there are also actions being taken. Uh, you've got a petition, a ballot measure petition uh, that's being driven here. You've got the lawsuit, the Let Kids Learn lawsuit. Can you walk through those briefly? We've got a couple minutes left. Um, on, on what's happening to react to those sorts of things and what, what, what would change to make that happen? So first, the Let Kids Learn lawsuit is a federal lawsuit. The Mackinac Center Legal Foundation is assisting five families who want to use some available uh, funding under their 529 savings accounts to um, help them pay for private education options while their schools were, were closed down during the pandemic. And then just because they see the need for flexibility going forward. Mm-hmm. That case is going to be in the courts for a while as we try to sort out that state constitutional issue and whether it discriminates against families uh, based on whether they choose a religious or non-religious school. Uh, in the legislature, we, we saw a couple months ago the Let Kids Learn Scholarship Plan, which would create something much um, more robust than the 529 savings plan, but would give all kinds of low-income kids, uh, kids with special needs, um, access to funds. Uh, through these nonprofit scholarship organizations to choose not just a private school in-person tuition, but all the sorts of options and services we were talking about before, because that uses a state tax credit and we have a governor pushing back uh, on it. 
um, some citizens have turned it into a petition effort to uh, bypass the governor's veto. So we'll have to wait later this year to see if that's something that can be available to students and families going forward. Do you think that that we've only got a few seconds left, but do you think that those have chances of 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 happening for families that are struggling with the system right now? I'm I'm very hopeful and optimistic. And Michigan has been cited as a place where there's lots of more barriers than usual to choice. But I think the Let Kids Learn initiative is finally giving hope to families in ways we've never seen before. Uh, ben DeGroe, a Director of Education Policy at the Mackinac Center, thanks for coming on. There's a lot of frustrated parents. It motivated a lot of people to the polls in the last uh, election down in Virginia. It's probably going to motivate a, lot of, uh, motivate a lot of people here in Michigan, too, as you just see tensions rising in school board meetings and the like. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. You're listening to Mackinac on Michigan, brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on 760 WJR. We'll be right back. to the Mackinac Michigan show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on 760 WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jarrett Skurup of the Mackinac Center. And in this segment, we want to talk about this, this really cool new project you guys are doing. Frank Beckman, uh, obviously longtime radio host here on WJR, all around great guy, great commentator. And you guys are launching a whole new project uh, in his name. Tell us about it, Jarrett. Yeah, so we... Uh... So the Mackinac Center, we're a free market think tank up in, in Midland, and we've been around for more than 30 years. And, you know, when Frank was on the radio show, he would have us on uh, very often, yeah. love talking public policy with him. Um, I think he, he survived some of my very bad first radio interviews when I was on working for the Mackinac Center. <laughs> and we had, honestly, we, we had a couple of donors and we wanted to figure out a way to honor him. And so the Mackinac Center's launching um, today this Frank Beckman Center for Journalism. So obviously he was a longtime broadcast journalist. And so this is really a way for us to honor his legacy while also being able to provide funding behind uh, new efforts to expand our, our media operations and our journalism programs, uh, which is primarily from a free market pers- limited government perspective. And so that's kind of the onus behind the project. That's fascinating. So will you guys be producing content with this and, and actually getting writers in the pipeline and producing new media with it? Yeah. So the so the radio show that we're talking on now will be under this project. Of course. Um, we'll do enhanced state and national media outreach. So we have uh, the Mackinac Center has a, a news website, Michigan Capital Confidential. So we have reporters for that um, that will continue doing investigative work on uh, government inefficiency, government waste, abuse. And a big part of that is um, doing things like filing Freedom of Information Act, but just funding mm-hmm. investigative work. So we've, we've had lots of projects over the last 10 years that have broken some pretty major stories. Um, we did a lot of work in the last year in particular on what's happening with Michigan's nursing homes and our yeah. COVID policies and education and how much you, you can find a database of how much funding every single school in the state is getting. So the, the Frank Beckman Center um, will be used to fund a lot of those efforts. And, you know, I'm just thinking about the broad landscape of journalism right now and of, of media. And you see such a huge shift taking place, right? You see uh, traditional media outlets like cable news sort of being sucked into their own viewership. Uh, you know, uh, people don't trust the traditional news outlets that much anymore. 
Obviously, uh, radio has a sort of its place within a certain partisan uh, lean, uh, generally speaking. But then you see this whole landscape of media being driven by um, new outlets, podcasts, mm -hmm. uh, people on the far right and the far left, uh, really driving home their own new media content and strategy. Um, and it seems that this whole landscape of what we think of as a traditional trusted media source has changed. Is this, is the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism sort of almost a response to that where you, you, you've got to adapt to the new landscape? You've got to create content. You, you don't see as much investigative journalism anymore, right? You don't see that right. on cable news. You see that maybe out of a couple of the papers like the Detroit News, but you don't see it done that much anymore at the local level. Um, is that is that the thrust behind this? Yes. And we you know, we think that there's a void to fill of really hover, holding government accountable, doing that type of investigative work, also uh, providing a pipeline of journalists that do a good job for that. So we'll be partnering mm. um, with getting uh, interns that are college students who are interested in going in journalism, teaching them how to actually do that investigative work. And, and frankly, like we just see a big void on, on holding government accountable. We have so much money coming into the state. We have so many programs that are going on where we just have a lack of journalists that are looking into that. Yeah. And so we really want to expand our, our work there. And the important thing for people listening in is um, this center, we have a matching gift opportunity that will be for 2022. So for the rest of the year. And so what we want to do is encourage people, if you believe in that message, that message holding government accountable, funding a journalism arm for that, um, either go to Mackinac.org and you can figure out a way to donate. Or we also have a text to give option where if you text the word Michigan to the number 50155, you can get a fully matched gift that will go to these efforts. So that's a big fundraising effort for sure. Um, and it's needed. I mean, we, you mentioned FOIA requests and, and sort of what, what you guys already do with Michigan Capital Confidential. And sunshine is not apparent in Lansing. I mean, the, we, we've had so many FOIA requests come from reporters, come from Mackinac Center, come from other uh, outlets, and, and they just get nowhere. I saw a reporter tweet out yesterday that they demand, you know, they put in a FOIA request. They sent it back on a, on a, on a CD. And he was literally tweeting out, Do, does anyone have a CD-ROM that I can, I can access? This? It's like the state of Michigan's government is light years behind what we deserve as citizens to know about. And that is why stuff like the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism is so important, because otherwise nobody's doing the digging. Right? Yeah, we, we, FOIA is the, really the main process by which not just journalists, but citizens can, you have a right to access all this public information. But we've had eight lawsuits we've had to file wow. against uh, just in the last year against government entities that have hid information, some for years. We've been fighting for years trying to get information from entities that are funded by your tax dollars. And that, and, you know, that costs money, that costs time, that costs lawyers. And so by people contributing to this effort, that allows us to hold government accountable just on things like how many people died in nursing homes in Michigan. That took us a year and lawsuits to figure out. Um, how, how did these COVID policies come into place? Um, Michigan got $6 million that was spent on um, doing criminal justice policies across the state that we were trying to figure out where is this money actually going. All those things need to be done uh, with funds and with journalists on the ground. 
Uh, Jared Skirp at the Mackinac Center, uh, that, that is a great new project. Uh, you can learn more at Mackinac.org. You're listening to the Mackinac Michigan Show here on 760 WJR. We'll be right back. to the Mackinac Michigan Show brought to you by the Frank Beckman Center for Journalism here on 760 WJR. I'm Kelly Cobb, joined by Jared Skurup from the Mackinac Center. There has been a lot of money uh, being thrown around in Lansing recently. We've got new numbers of what Governor Whitmer wants to spend, and we've had the uh, Republicans in the legislature proposing instead to spend some of that money by giving it back to you in the form of tax relief. We're joined now by the House Appropriations Chairman, Representative Thomas Albert. Thanks for coming on the show today. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So give us a sense now. The state has like $20 billion in surplus money. A small amount of that is because we've collected more in taxes this year than we anticipated. But a lot of this is federal COVID money, right? It's one-time money. What are you uh, in the legislature proposing to do here? Well, maybe if I could back up and kind of explain like like how much money do we have right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you look, that'd be good to know. I'm glad yeah. someone knows. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's really hard to keep track of. Uh, but if you look at the federal, most people, when they talk about the federal dollars, they talk about the federal discretionary funds where we have flexibility. We have like three point or sorry, 5.3 billion of those dollars. Mm. Um, and then if you look at state funds, we have on our balance sheet right now, so this is kind of like in a savings account. We have 3.4 billion of general fund dollars and $3.6 billion of school aid fund dollars. So this is very historic, very unprecedented. Um, you know, I, I've had a little, uh, you know, I've seen some public comments of what's going to be in the governor's exec rec. And, you know, I, I think we now know if Governor Whitmer won the lottery, what she would do. Uh, we kind of have a good old-fashioned spending spree right now. Uh, is yeah, those lottery winners with. don't, uh, doesn't turn out well for most of them. <laughs> it does not. No. And, uh, you know, I think, especially right now, you know, I, I chair the budget in the house. I, I really want to make sure we don't go down the, the path of those lottery winners. So, uh, you know, one thing I'm looking at your, your original question is what are we proposing? Uh, I don't have a specific proposal right now, but I, I, I definitely want to focus on tax relief. If you look at the federal government has infused a, a ridiculous amount of money in, in throughout the entire economy, um, and there's three ways that that can be paid for. They can increase taxes, they can uh, take out debt, or they can print money. And that causes an inflation tax. And we're seeing right now your average working Michigan families are getting hit hard by an inflation tax. So we need to offset some of that pressure and offer tax relief. Yeah, I think that's the key point. I mean, people talk about we're just getting this free money from the federal government. I mean, you're paying for that in taxes, you're paying for it inflation, or you're going to pay for it someday. And that's a, there's no free lunch. It's the oldest saying in economics or what most well-known saying of, of economics. So um, yeah, that's interesting. You know, you make that point. How much are you, but even with that, that tax cut, where obviously there's probably still plenty of money. Um, what kind of investments um, are you guys looking to make? What would you like to focus on? I'd presume uh, one-time spending? Do you have ongoing costs? What's the idea? Yeah. So I guess, first off, if we're going to do any type of tax relief, it needs to be sustainable. So, so the, those balances I talked about a minute ago, you know, those can't really be used for ongoing tax relief. I suppose you could come up with a one-time uh, tax relief with those one-time funding sources. But 
Um, one thing I didn't mention is uh, House Fiscal is, is a nonpartisan agency that we use to kind of help build the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, they're estimating we have a, a billion of new ongoing revenue in the school aid fund and 800 million of ongoing general fund. So that's kind of the ballpark or the playing field that I'm looking in uh, to, to find some type of tax relief. So, you know, the general fund dollars could be used for you know, we could look at some type of, of property tax relief, or it could be an income tax rate rollback. Mm-hmm. It could be looking at personal exemptions. Uh, we really have a, a lot of, of flexibility to try and be creative in a way that we can apply as fair a tax relief as possible. And obviously, we've already got to that point, but you've got, you've got the cost of everything going up. Putting more money into people's pockets right now by, by giving them tax relief will help them to be able to afford everything because of inflation. And, and uh, from everything from a gallon of gas to a brand new house, everything is up skyrocketing. Um, if, if, you, if you do tax relief, obviously, is there a timeline at which you think we'll hit a point where we'll have to revisit this conversation, right? Where, where we're lowering our taxes on a permanent basis and now in five years, we're going to have to come back with all this one-time money and we're going to have to raise taxes again? Or is there a way that we can lock those rates in and keep our spending under control at the same time? I, I think there's you know, $800 million of, of new ongoing. That's a lot of running room to, to offer some type of tax relief. Um, you know, on the other side, I didn't really talk about the school aid fund, but uh, for those that aren't aware, our, our school financial ecosystem we've created is, is highly unsustainable. Uh, we have runaway pension costs right now. Mm-hmm. Um, last I saw, I'm pretty sure we're about 45% of payroll is going to pay for the, the pension uh, yeah. liabilities that were accrued in, in years past when wow. I was uh, in elementary school. So uh, we're paying for that now. And actually, who's paying the most is the kids who aren't getting those, those dollars in the classroom to help with their education. So there, there are a lot of things we can do to help pay down debt and uh, to change the structure with how we pay those pension systems in a way that's uh, more financially prudent. So uh, on the other side of the coin, I'm, I'm looking at that as well. I mean, you know, tax relief is good, but, but we have enough resources right now to, to not only look at tax relief, but, um, but paying down debt and making sure we save for the future as well. So I think there's a, a lot of good things we can do with our finance or our finances right now. Yeah. The, and there's there's always talk about you know Michigan we're we're, we're struggling uh, with population growth keeping people here. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the states that are growing, I mean these are states they spend way less uh, on government than we do. They uh, almost all of them have had significant tax cuts in the last couple of years. Something that um, Michigan hasn't had this net cross board tax cut for some years now. Our our state spending has increased ten billion dollars in the last three years under Governor Whitmer. That's uh, are we getting $10 billion better services than we were three years ago? Um, but broadly, what do we have to do to keep up with these other states, especially other Midwest states that have a more competitive environment? Yeah, that's a, that's a tremendous question. Um, there's so many things we could do to have a better tax environment to make Michigan more attractive. If you look at where people are moving, they're you know highly, I should say, a large portion of them are moving to states with with no income tax. You know, Tennessee doesn't have an income tax. Texas doesn't. Um, so, so that's just very attractive. But there's other things we can do as well. The the commercial personal property tax we have is a huge barrier to um, entrepreneurs uh, and small businesses growing or yeah. or even creating a business. So 
it's an archaic way of, of doing taxes. Uh, for those that aren't aware, uh, essentially, if, if you buy any type of equipment, you pay you pay tax on. If you mm-hmm. you know you own a store and you buy a, you know shelves to to put goods on, you have to pay tax on the, on that shelf and extra tax. Yeah, besides yeah. just the sales tax or whatever you buy. Yeah, it really That's discourages it. investment. Precisely. Yeah, it discourages investments, the, the best way to put it. So um, we're looking at, at avenues like that as well. So there's there's just so many things we could do to have a better tax structure. And, and you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative of what Governor Snyder did 10 years ago. We still don't have the best tax structure in, in the country, but we're a heck of a lot better than we were over a decade ago. I mean, the Michigan business tax was possibly one of the worst taxes ever created. So at least for a corporate income tax uh, standpoint, we have a flat competitive tax rate for that. But there's, there's still uh, areas that we could look for improvement. So really quick, we only got a, a, about 10 seconds left, but uh, you got the governor wanting to spend this money. You got tax relief on the Republican side in the legislature. Is collaboration possible? Yes or no? It's that simple. Yes, I think we've worked together um, in the second half of last year. The first half of last year, was there was a lot of animosity, uh, but uh, yeah, I think the governor has changed her approach, so so did we, and uh, I think we can we can find a way to get something done. House Appropriations Chairman Tom Elbert, thanks for coming on the show. You're listening to the Mackinac, Michigan Show on 760 WJR. Opinions heard in the preceding program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of Cumulus Media or WJR Radio.